I want to say that it's such a joy to be here and um, so enjoyed that, uh, Brother Dennis, and your session. And I'm going to do my best tonight, or today I should say, to be a more balanced person and uh, not chase as many rabbits and tell as many stories. My eye was on full rain. I went home uh, to a hotel, I should say, last night. And you, you all know, though you the ministers know what this is like. I went home and back to the hotel, beat myself up a little bit, called my wife this morning. I said, babe, I said, I was getting lost in my stories. I didn't know where I was at. And she just laughed about it. <laughs> so anyway, so good to be here and looking forward to hearing uh, Brother Gurley here in just a few moments, so um, I'm going to do my best to dive in. We're going to talk a little bit about developing a culture for teams that win, and I am sure I will tell some stories along the way. Uh, the term organizational culture, it is um, becoming somewhat more uh, prevalent. You, you hear about it uh, more often in the last um, recent years, and um, even within the church circles, and along with that, um, and even more so, you hear the term strategic planning. Um, you don't hear a lot about strategic foresight. Uh, that's somewhat uncommon. But uh, you hear a lot about strategic planning. And uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about organizational culture, and we'll talk a little bit about its relationship with strategy. Um, organizational culture, what does it mean? What are some definitions of organizational culture? Well, here is one. It has been described as the proper way to behave within the organization. And um, I'm going to give just a few different descriptions for what um, organizational culture is. It's the proper way to behave within the organization. It's been said that organizational culture is the glue that holds the organization together. I like this one. It is the silent code of conduct. You ever heard people say, I'm just trying to learn the ropes around here? Well, when they say, I'm trying to learn the ropes around here, what they're saying is, is that I'm trying to figure out what the organizational culture is. Now, most people would not know that term, so they just say, I'm trying to learn the ropes. But what they really are saying is, I'm trying to figure out what is the culture of the organization. Um, this is my personal favorite when it comes to organizational culture, and that is, is the personality of the organization. I, I like it. It's simple. It's easy to remember. And so when people say, well, what is the culture of the organization? Uh, it's the personality. And, and uh, that, that seems to be a very easy one to remember. Um, it's, it's not uh, within church circles. Uh, the culture is not if they have lights or don't have lights or if you wear ties or don't wear ties or if it is a cool um, set up on the platform. I mean, those things might be a part of the culture, but that in and of itself is not the culture. The culture goes way beyond uh, those aesthetic things. Um, the culture is really more about how people act. It, it's it's the, the people within the church. Culture has been defined as, and this is the actual definition, as the shared values, attitudes, and practices that characterize an organization. And so this shared values is a big part of it because values seems to be had the most dominant um, trait in defining and shaping what culture is like. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, culture is um, simple when you think about it being the personality, but at the same time, it's very complex. It's uh, ever-changing. Um, it is not static. It, it's it's ever-changing. It's vulnerable. It's dependable upon the moods of the people and the key influencers of the church organization. Uh, culture is the way that the people operate. They're the way that the people function. It's impacted by the behaviors, and those behaviors are impacted by the core values of people. Um, the first time I heard it described as such, it was D.G. DG Hargrove that was describing um, the flow of how that um, values are revealed in behaviors. I often say it now that if I can just observe you long enough, I can figure out what you value because it's not your value statement. Businesses have value statements and they don't abide by them. Um, you, you can come up with all kinds of value statements. So it's not your value statement. It's actually 
what you truly value, and that's always revealed in your behavior. And your behavior is going to take you somewhere. It always is going to end up uh, showing forth in your destination. And so if you don't like where you're at today in your life, you can trace it back to your behaviors. What a man sows, that's what he's going to reap. And so your behaviors are the outflow of what you really truly value, not your professed values, but what you value. And then you have to figure out well, where those values come from. The hardest book I've ever read in my life was a book titled The Genesis of Values. And um, it was originally written in German, it was a philosopher. There, there, are, there are paragraphs that are one sentence long. Um, I would reread it over and over again. We complained as students in the doctoral program, why are we reading this book? And our professor said, well, I speak five languages. I'm from South Africa. Uh, he has two PhDs, and he said, it is the hardest book I've ever read. And we're like, well, why are we reading it? And uh, he said, well, he said, English is my worst language of the five. He said, my German is a whole lot better. And he goes, I've read it in its original um, translation. Uh, it was originally written in, in German. And uh, he said, it's difficult to read there. And we're like, well, why? And he goes, because I don't know of a book that better describes where values come from than this book. And uh, I can just sum it up and just simply say that your values come from um, your experiences. They come from your, your family your, of origin, um, how you were raised, the environment around you. They, they come from your experiences, and they actually are, uh, if you say your experiences, they are your, your thought process, your mindset, your philosophy. And that's where your values stem from. And so you can say, well, I need to change those values. Well, you got to go back to your philosophy, your mindset. And I'm going to dive into a little bit of that with a, a story here in a little bit and, and describe that in a little bit more detail. So here is the important question, and that is, well, why does culture matter? Why, why should we take time and think about the culture of organization? And the reason is, is because... Uh, culture has a major impact on strategy. Peter Drucker, who is one of the most widely known and influential thinkers on management, he said this, became quite famous for it. He said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Someone else came along and added the word every day. <laughs> and I like that. Culture eats strategy for breakfast every day. In other words, the shared values the attitudes, the practices of the people within the organization, they are often more important than the strategy. Now, I, I just need to pause here and just point out something. Um, within the church circle, and, and that's where I've spent most of my time is within the church circle, I have found that we will spend a lot of time talking about vision. We spend less time talking about strategy if we do talk about strategy, we seldom ever truly consider culture. And so what we do is that we are notorious for running to conferences and we pick up tools that work for someone else and we think we can go home and implement those same tools and get the same results and we don't realize that we are in a totally different culture. Now I'm not talking about the north, south, big city, small city, that, I mean those, Things have a play in the culture, but I'm talking about even within the culture of your local assembly can be totally different than the culture of a church across town. And so culture is not necessarily, oh, this is bad, this is evil. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the shared values. We're talking about the practices, the attitudes, the personality. We just talked about the differences in, in, in personalities amongst individuals. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to uh, churches and it comes to organizations. There is a personality. And that personality is going to determine whether that strategy is effective or that strategy is not effective. And I see this violation often, and that's why I wanted to talk a little bit about this today. The, the real work is not in crafting a strategy the real work is in working the strategy, making the strategy happen. The work's not in putting together a plan. The work is in executing the plan. And making that plan come to fruition is largely determined, if you're able to do that, it's largely determined by 
the culture, no matter how detailed and solid the strategy is, if the culture isn't what it should be, then the plan's going to fail. It's not going to work. People, if people are not passionate about the vision, then they're not, they're not going to be passionate about executing the plan. And so the strategy doesn't have a chance against wrong culture. So years ago, I was um, asked to, um, to do some leadership uh, training uh, with a, a church, with their core leaders. And there were, uh, there were 17 of them that showed up for this meeting. And I have to um, let you know and give you a little bit of the background. I, I knew where I was at. I knew the pastor very, very well. I had known him all my life. He's known me all my life, I should say. Uh, he's, he's an elder, and he is a dominant driver. Okay? So I knew that, and I knew that the people were used to him being the dominant driver, and so they could take me being a little bit more dominant. And I knew that in order to be effective where I was at, I needed to be a little bit more dominant. So I began talking with them, and we have a kind of a U-shaped seating area, and I'm standing in front, and, and I said, I have a question for you. I said, um, you run into someone at Walmart, and you say, or they say to you, um, I really love your church. How do you respond? Do you respond, A, oh, when, do, when were you in church service with us? Or B, oh, who did you meet from our church? Or C, when did you see our church building? And I said, so grab a piece of paper, and I want you to write it real big. It said, A, B, or C, do not show it to your neighbor. I'm going to write down what I think your response is going to be. So we all wrote it down. I said, okay, now would you lift your paper up? And we all held up our papers. And every single one of us, including myself, we had A. Were you in church service with us? And I said, I knew that. I said, because I've visited your church enough to know your behaviors. I said, you all love to have great church. I said, you value having great church. You want to move of God. I said, that's great. I said, there's only one problem. I said, currently, you have a strategy. I said, and I see it being reflected in your, your, uh, your, your flags that you have hanging up in your church and, and your advertisements in the lobby and, and all these things. And I said, and it says, whole families made whole. I said, you guys want to reach families. I said, the problem is, is that you don't value them. And it's like really, really quiet. And I said, and I can prove it. I said, sir. And I pointed at the pastor's 27 or so year old son. I said, um, you are the music director here and the admin pastor. And, um, and I said, um, you're not married. And how far do you live from the church? And he told me, I said, how long does it take for you to get here? It was about five minutes. And I said, okay. I said, I'm going to prove it to you that you don't value families. I said, um, today you had music practice at 930. And I said, there was a family here in your music team. And they were sitting here in the group. And I said, they were here with their three children on time, ready to start music practice. And I said, and you were 15 minutes late. And the bishop is sitting back there, and he's going like, shake his head again I knew where I was at felt very safe and, and they're dear they're dear people and his son is a great guy but uh, he was like he got really quiet and they were kind of looking at him and I said uh, y'all don't y'all don't value families in other words it's not your culture your culture is to have a great church service but your culture is not what you're trying to do you're trying to reach families but it's not fitting i said i'll take a little further i said because you started practice late you ran your practice late and your church people have become accustomed to the fact that church does not start at 10:30 it starts at about 10:45 
I said, but your guests don't know that church starts at 1045. They think it starts at 1030 because the sign out in front of the church says it starts at 1030 and your guests showed up early. But I said, well, there was no one there to greet them. There was no one there to, to connect with them. I said, they came in and they're wondering this church already started because you guys are still seen. And I said, and then when you get done with your, your singing, I said, you guys get together, and I don't understand how you guys have a holy huddle as though that your 30-second prayer is going to make a big difference. I said, why don't you guys come to church early and pray, or pray the night before, or do something? I said, you're not changing the atmosphere with your 30-second prayer. And I said, you guys gather together, and you pray, and then you run off of the platform, and you run out to get something to drink because you guys have been practicing for an hour. And then you come back in, and someone walks through the pulpit, and I said, and something miraculous happens and the, I said it's because your voice changes and I said because I talk to you and you're normal but when you walk the pulpit all of a sudden bless God let's all stand and lift our voices and our hands to heaven God is going to move in this place today I said you haven't shaken their hand they're talking about the guest you haven't connected with them and yet you say that your strategy is to reach families it's not going to happen So here is a strategy. Here's a plan. We're going to reach X amount of families, and we don't change the culture. And we do this in organizations. We do this within church organizations. We do this within businesses. We do this over and over again, is that we come up with strategies, and we never deal with the big issue. And the big issue is the culture. And the culture does eat strategy for breakfast every day. We don't think about it. We don't, we don't address the, the personality. And so we come with strategy. Okay, we need to accomplish this. Here's our strategy. Woo-hoo! And we get all excited about it, and then it fails. And this is what I did for years is I thought, oh, I did, I did a poor job of casting that vision and, and talking about it. So I'll, 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 re, I'll circle back around, and now I'll talk about it again, and I'll cast that vision again, and I'll make it more exciting. And then, okay, well, I've got to do something else. And we come with all kinds of gimmicks trying to get people to get engaged. And the problem is, is that we've never truly addressed the personality of the organization. Is this okay? Does it make sense? I, um, <laughs> I, I, I took it a little further with that particular setting. I got done, and the, the young music guy walks outside. He goes, I have a couple of questions for you. And I said, yes. And he said, I'm trying to move things forward. And he said, uh, I'm running into hurdles. And he said, I used to start on time. I was a strictler for starting on time. And he said, but then people kept violating it. And he said, and I fell and just gave up. And so I talked to him about that. I said, you're, you're the leader. You've you, you got to set course. And we talked about that for a little while. And then I said, I have another question to ask you, though. I said, why do you have a special parking spot? Because I heard him talk about teams and how that we are a team. I mean, it's, it's quiet in here, y'all. Now, I'm not against special parking spots. My dad's got one. Everyone's had one. I'm not, I'm not against it. But I'm wondering, why is a 27-year-old doing with a special parking spot? And he said, well, he said, um, my dad used to park at this one spot, and he goes, and then someone came along, and they parked in my dad's spot, and he goes, and it ticked me off, and he said, and I went out and got a sign, and I put it up, this is pastor's parking spot. And I said, oh, so that made that guy respect your dad because your dad has a sign now? And he got really quiet. I said, but that's not answering my question. I said, my question is, why do you have one? I said, I think it's great that your dad's got a special parking spot. I said, he's an elder, and I said, um, he's a pastor. He's a senior pastor, and I said, he, he, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I said, but I want to know why you have one. He goes, well, I got a new car, and I don't want to get dings in it. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I got one, too. That's why I parked it way out there in the parking lot. And so these are things that they're very simple. As I'm talking about it right now, everyone's here going, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. And yet we violate these kind of things often because we're, we're, we are oblivious of it. We, we just don't see it. And these are the things that actually make the difference if the strategy works or not. And so let's talk a little bit about how you shape culture. How do you shape culture? So 
Our job as leaders is to ensure that the culture is healthy, that it's conducive to the direction that we are moving. So how do we shape it? Well, the first thing is, is you want to assess the culture. And there are three things you need to look at. And that is you need to ask yourself, is the current culture healthy or is it toxic? And that may be a too strong of a word. You could just say, is it healthy or unhealthy? Number two is that what needs to change within the culture in order for you to go where you need to go? You've got a, you've got a desire to, to get here. So what needs to change within the culture? Number three, very important, what impact is your personality and or the personalities of key influencers within the organization? What impact is those personalities having on the culture? And so I'm going to give you five ways that you can influence or help shape culture. And I probably should have made the five, six, seven, eight, and by the time it's all said and done here in a minute, uh, it may be seven or eight. Um, the first one is you shape culture by whom you place in positions. The people that you place in positions, they have, here, here's the key, and when I say people you place in positions, is that the personality of those individuals have a great, great, uh, can have a great impact on the culture. And so the people who serve in positions, number two, what you emphasize. What do you emphasize? In other words, are you aware of what the values are within your organization, within the church? And do you, do you talk about it? Do you emphasize it? What you emphasize, what you hang from the banner, what you preach, what you talk about, what you, all these kind of things, they're going to have an impact. Number three is what you measure. What is it that you measure? And it's very, very important in having an impact on your, your culture. And number four, how you act or react. How you respond to things. It's going to have a great impact. And number five, how you live. What kind of life do you live? It's going to have a great impact on the culture. So those are the the original five, and now I'm going to just share with you. Um, I'm going to go to my I, because I've been too much of a C in following my notes. And now I'm to my I personality. Here we go. <laughs> and so here, here's some very, very simple things that you need to consider, and this is kind of looking back at some things we just talked about, you, you assess the culture. You're, you're looking at it. You're going like, okay, I don't like where we're at right now. Some things need to change. So I don't want to get too fixated with the behaviors. I want to understand what is the value that needs to change because somewhere in that value, that's a key influencer in shaping culture because culture is going to determine if it works or not. I can come up with a strategy, but I need to know, is the culture what it needs to be? So now I've got to focus on the culture. And so I'll give you some just some very um, simple um, illustrations. Uh, when I arrived at, at Katie, there is, a, um, there is a, a kind of a minister's gathering, minister's in training, preachers only type of a group. And they would meet at nine o'clock and the, and the value of this is one is to pour into leaders. But two is that at 10 o'clock we have service and you, you want to make sure that your leaders are there and that they're connecting and you know, there's some energy and all these things. So we go in and it became my part of responsibilities to go in and I would teach about 35, 40% of the time uh, during that time period. And, uh, but I would almost always start the class off. So I'm the guy coming, let's pray. Well, you come in, and it's kind of quiet. You know, it's 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. People's heads are down, and 
You're like, let's stand and pray. And then we start praying. Let's lift our voice and give the Lord some praise. Oh, God, we give you glory. Let's lift our voice. There, Lord, we give glory. Let's lift our hands. <laughs> lift your voice. Let's talk to the Lord for a moment. And you're like, let's pray and pray. And it's like, man, it's all that you can do to get people to. And I'm like, man, if we walk out of here like we are in here right now and go out to meet guests, it's going to be disastrous. You know, imagine walking to them. Glad to have you here this morning. You know, God bless you. I mean, like, who wants to go to church with that? And so I come in, and now Brother Malter was um, the librarian at JCM when I went to school. When my dad went to school at Tupelo, which is the former, uh, what JCM was when it was in Tupelo, uh, Brother Malter was the vice president. And so some of you know Chuck Carr. This is his grandfather. And uh, Brother Malter wore a bow tie, and he was a shorter man. He carried a briefcase, and he walked really fast. And he's kind of like stiff like this, but he would walk. And everywhere he went, he would walk into our chapel. And the chapel was in the gym. And he would come walking in the back of the chapel. And all of a sudden, good morning, all you fortunate people. And that's Brother Malter. And we're not talking about every now and then. It's like every day. Good morning, all you fortunate people. And it was chipper. And it was, I mean, it was, it was exciting. We'd all smile, you know. So I don't know what happened. My eye personality a move of the Holy Ghost on me, I don't know. I came walking in the back of this room that we have this meeting in, and I looked at all the deadness there, and I couldn't take it. And I said, good morning, all you fortunate people. And, man, they jumped, and people kind of looked at me, and a few of them laughed, and, and, and that was, you know, kind of funny. And, when I, and here's what was crazy about it. Dr. Erickson, when I said, let's stand and pray, we stood and I said, let's pray. And, man, it was like, dear God, we give you glory. And it was like a totally different atmosphere. And I went like, I like that. <laughs> That's a lot easier to work with than come on now, let's lift our voices, let's lift our hands. And so the next Sunday, I'm coming walking in the back, and I thought, I'm going to do it again. Good morning, all you fortunate people. And they started laughing. I did this for about a month and a half, two months. And after that, I just ceased doing it. It totally changed the atmosphere. By the time I got through that, that month and a half or so of, good morning, all you fortunate people, every time we'd walk in, let's stand and pray. It, man, we're up on our feet. We're praying. It changed the atmosphere. I, I, There's some years ago. Years ago, I, I remember walking in to be a part of a, of, a, um, of, a, of a meeting, and there was some staff people there, and it was this like little cutting understatements. They're kind of like a little bit of funny but they're not so funny you know a little bit of a uh, uh, passive aggressive type statements and i i don't like that at all i i i'm i detest passive aggressive statements and i think they're unbiblical <laughs> they're of the devil anyway it's like a pet peeve i don't i don't like it and uh probably because my mom does a little bit of that when I was a kid <laughs> and my grandma did a whole lot of it i shouldn't have gone there that's my eye here give me that d <laughs> And so anyway, uh, I'm like, you can't do that all the time. And so I walk in, I'm a part of this, this um, meeting, and I'm like, okay, I don't like this. This is, this is not a healthy culture. And so when something was said, I didn't laugh. Instead, I turned around and looked at somebody and said, man, I really appreciate. And I went into how much I appreciated them. I did that for about a month and a half, two months, and it totally changed. That atmosphere changed. My point is, is that you, every one of you, you have the power to help shape culture, healthy culture. Now, where is that going to come from? It's going to come from the root of who you really are. It's, it's your values. It's what you value. Now, I'll give you another, another illustration. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm new to TBC, and with anything and everything, at any time along the journey, there's always going to be a need to move forward. Never changes. So if, if you've been a part of a church for 50 years, there's going to come a time that you're going to be looking at 50 years from now, and you're going to be like, okay, what do we need to do to move forward? 
And so this is the same thing that I talk about when I go out to help churches. I talk to pastor friends. I'm doing coaching, doing consulting. These are the same things I talk about all the time. One of the things that we do is that I do the dispersonality. Now, I don't do it as well as Brother Dennis does, uh, but I do the dispersonality because I want to find out what are the different personalities that I'm working with. And usually, usually I can walk into a room and I can tell, oh, this person is a C, this person's a D. I can usually do that. In fact, there was a church I went to, I did uh, what's called an infinity diagram. So I'm using sticky notes on the wall and we're doing a value assessment and we're narrowing down their values. And I just watched them for an hour and a half. I only knew one person in the entire group. And after that, we went to talk about the disc. And I said, before you reveal your results, I said, I want to tell each of you what you are. And I went around the room, and they showed me the results. I showed them my response before, and I had every single person without fail. I had it right because I'm just watching behavior. And so this is the first thing. One of the first things that I will do is that I want to do, about, I want to do a personality assessment. If I was to step into a role here at Urshan College and I have a team of people to work with, the very first thing that I, one of the first things I want to do is I want to find out what is the differences in personalities. Who am I working with? I want, to, I want to know that. And then the next thing is, is that I want to know what are the values? Well, how do I find out what the values are? I just watch behavior. And so there are going to be some things that I'm going to see that need to change. If, you're, if you don't see things that need to change and you are a leader, then please get out of leadership. <laughs> I tell, people, I tell people all the time, I've done this for years, if you don't look at me and leading and you don't say to yourself, I wouldn't do it that way, I would do it differently, I said, then you need to get out of leadership. I said, because I've done that with every leader I've been around, including my father. I would do this different. I said, now, having said that, you need to extend some grace. I said, because most of the time, you don't know all the other reasons why a leader's doing what they're doing. And I said, so you got to extend some grace. And I said, but at the same time, you're probably going to find some things that they need to do different. I tell my children that. If you, don't, if you do not improve and look at, at, at how your mom and your dad do things and you don't look at us and go, you know what, I think I would do that a little different and try to figure out how to improve things. I said, then you've, you've, missed, you've missed what we've been trying to teach you. I'm all for critical thinking. I'm not for being a critical person being pessimistic and, you know, and, and negative all the time. I'm not for that, but I'm all for critical thinking. And so you've got to be able to look at things and say, okay, what needs to change? And so th this is nothing bad, but what do we need to change? What do we need to move forward? Okay, what are the values that are going to determine if we're moving forward or if we're not moving forward? What are those values? So here's an example. If you value excellence and you talk about excellence, then it ought to show forth in everything that you do. It ought to show forth in how you dress. It ought to show forth in how clean your car is. It ought to show forth in how clean your room is. It ought to show forth in if you value excellence, if you value diligence. And so sometimes people look at their life and they're like, well, I don't really like where I'm at right now, but they can't figure out why they got to where they're at right now. And the reason they got to where they're at right now is because of their values. And so they've, they've got to go back and they've got to address these values that come from their philosophies. So I had this happen some years ago. I walked into a situation where there was two ladies out in the lobby of the church after service, and they were talking with one another. But I could tell from the body language it was not one of those, hey, what are you cooking today? It was one of those, I'm getting ready to cook you. <laughs> and and they, were, they were going at it, and I walked over it because one of them was a leader. And one of them was, was, was not a leader and their their spouse was not a leader they, were, they attended the church but one of them was a leader and i walked around and said can i see you just for a second and she stepped aside and i said um what's going on and she said well i and went into about you know a little bit what was happening and i said well listen i said you you are a leader you can't do that you're violating our values of, of teamwork and working together and and you can't do that and she said oh, I'm, I'm sorry what about six months later would you know same two ladies almost the same exact spot in the lobby, doing the same exact thing. And I walked around and said, hey, can I see you for a second? We stepped aside, and would you know that it was probably about nine months later that I walked out in the lobby, and the same two ladies, almost the same exact place, going at, this, at it again. And I said, I need to see you for a second. 
And this time I went and got my wife and I said, uh, let's, let's go to my office. We walked to my office and I looked at this lady and I said, um, I'm getting ready to have you removed from your leadership position or um, I'm going to bring the other lady in here and the two of you are going to wash each other's feet. Now that sounds like a dominant driver. Does it not? Yeah. Dominant driver. And I, I can get there pretty quick if I need to. And I, I'm not a dumb driver, but I can get there. And so I was like, you, you, this isn't happening. And then she just started weeping. And I'm like, I said, what, what, what's driving this? Because clearly there's a value that you are not going to talk down to me. You're not going to push my buttons. You're not, I'm going to protect myself. That was very clear. I said, what is driving this? Because I want to know what is the root of all this. What's the, where's the philosophy? Where's the mindset that drives this value? Because what's happening right now is that there is a clash of values. We have group values. Now listen, this is important. We have group values. And the group value, one of our group values is teamwork. I said, you are violating that because you have a personal value that you're going to protect yourself, and it's becoming stronger than the group value. And I said, you can't do that. You can hold on to that value. It's a good value. I'll protect myself. I said, but it can't become stronger than our, than our team value. I said, so what's driving that? Well, I found out the story. Before she came to the Lord, first husband was a deadpan. He didn't treat her right. Second husband was even worse. He beat her up physically, and he was verbally abusive. And then he walked out on her. And so she has this strong value based on these philosophies from what happened to her in, in earlier in her life. And she's like, that's not going to happen again. And now it's violating those values. My point here is, is that when you talk about the personality of a church or a personality of an organization, that personality is what the fancy term is the culture of the church. And what drives that culture are the key people of that church and their personality and their values. And when you got a key person with values that are conflicting with the group values, you got to do something to call them into alignment. So D.G. Hargrove, after 20-something years, we based there for a year and a half in a time of transition. I heard him talk about this a lot. D.G. Hargrove, after 20-something years of pastoring his church, he had been teaching and preaching these values over and over and over again. He calls them the nine keys that God gave him years ago. And he actually went to the hospital, and the lady died and saw her take her last breath. And when she did, she opened her hand. But he said she just opened it. She extended it wide open. And the Lord spoke to him and said, I want to take you to a higher level, but I can't take you to a higher level because you will not open your hand. He said, and you won't open your hand because you're afraid you're going to lose some things. And you're right. You are going to lose some things, but I can't put something better in your hand unless you're willing to let go of what's already in your hand. And he said, I was so moved by this. Lay down on the carpet. He leaves the, the hospital and goes back to the office. Lay down on the carpet. God begins to talk to him about nine keys. And for 20-some-plus years now, he has been teaching those nine keys. And he will tell these stories over and over again. And the year and a half that we were there, I'm in and out of town traveling. And I heard him tell the same stories over and over and over and over again. And he says that his, one of his top responsibilities is to preach the word of God and to massage the culture of North cities. And so he talks about these values and he's massaging the culture. Well, I'm, I, I'm not an idiot. I'm like, okay, if it works for DG Hargrove, it'll work for me. So one of the first things that, that I've done and anywhere I've gone is to try to, first of all, the personality. The second one is to assess the values as I've talked about. Well, the third one is, is to go in and make sure that we are adhering to the right kind of values. And so we talk about it. And we talk about it, and we talk about it, and we talk about it. And I tell the same stories over and over and over again. And over time, it begins to change. And then when you do have to do those things where you walk out and you're a dominant driver, you go like, okay, this isn't working. That, that right there, that's changing right now. And you take stuff down or you move stuff or, you, you know, then people know, oh, the reason he's doing that is because there's a value that we adhere to and over a period of time everyone begins to understand those values and they begin to adhere to them and then as dg hargrove says which is totally awesome is that in time you don't police anything everyone polices themselves and one another because they are so bought into those values we're talking about a culture a church can be a driven a a, a performance driven culture 
That's the value because they value performance. Or they could be a value-driven culture, which means that, you know what, we adhere to some core values, and we're going to get in behind those values and, and move forward with it. I want to take uh, just a little bit of time. I'm stopping a little early for uh, some Q&A. Anyone have any questions? Because someone talked to me earlier um, before the session, and I said, I'm getting ready to talk about that in just a few minutes. And so um, any questions? I didn't know I was that good to cover everything in 40 minutes. Is it too simple? Is it too complicated? Yes. That is so good. Thank you for asking that question. Um, one, one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself is self-awareness. And so, yes, to repeat the question. The question was, thank you. The question was, is that do you have any steps in how to assess and your, your, your own self? And, uh, you know, your, your values, where you're at, what, and, and along those kind of lines. And so um, the quick answer to that is that... Um, one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself is self-awareness, but most of us lack it. And then the other thing that we have is that we have confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is that we find what we want to hear, what we already buy into, and it's very difficult for us to see the other side. This is why, for all the students that are in here, this is why your instructors will often say things along these lines, like dig deep. I want you to read more articles. I want you to read some academic articles. I want you to go beyond where you're at right now. I don't want to hear your story. Has any instructor ever said that? I don't, I don't want to hear your story. You, you can talk about personal things later, but you're writing academic writing, and you need to use sources. You need to quote people. The reason that they're doing that is because they know that if you read enough, you're going to find opposing views. And when you find those opposing views, they are either going to, to strengthen where you're at right now, or they're going to cause you to, like, okay, wait a minute, I need to reconsider this. This is why we say that, that truth, truth, truth can handle being looked at. It, it's non-changing, and so you can dig deep. And so the same thing about yourself is that you often, we often lack that. So what I have found is that if I build a safe place, Daryl John said this to me. I was interviewing him for um, my book, Realign, and he said, Eugene, he said, there is a story that's been around for a while. He goes, you'll recognize it. He said, it is the emperor who wears no uh, uh, wore no clothes. And he says the reason that the emperor wore no clothes is because he never built a safe environment around him so that the people could tell the king that what you're doing is wrong. And as leaders, we have to be very, very careful because a lot of times people will not tell us what we really need to hear. In fact, I just found this here recently. I was researching for the new book I'm writing, and I found that one of the top reasons that CEOs fail is because of flattery. They find people that tell them what they want to hear or... or and along the same kind of lines, they find people that will tell them things that they don't want to change. And the way they do it is that they find something where the leader kind of is questioning and they go real strong and flattery, use flattery to keep the leader from making the necessary changes. And they said this is the one of the top reasons why CEOs fail. Well, we do the same thing. If, we, if we, all we hear is people tell us exactly what we want to hear, then... We, we're going to struggle really seeing ourselves. So what I've done for years now, and no one taught me this, I just wanted to grow. I went to people that were close to me, and I said, where, where do I need to grow and change? So when I was a young pastor, I went to them, and I said, what do I need to do to be a better, a, a better speaker? And then I went to them, and I said, what do I need to do to be a better leader? And about every year and a half, I did that. And finally, at one point, Robbie Mitchell, uh, which was, uh, was my roommate for a little while in Bible college, graduated together. He pastored in Asheville, and I was in East Tennessee. We built a couple homes together, and I would go over the mountain, and I preached for him so much that the church called me their assistant pastor. 
And so one day I asked Robbie, I said, Robbie, I said, I need some help. I said, I have found that I am becoming very cynical as a young guy, and I don't want to be an old cynical person. I said, because I'm pointing out all the wrong in order to make the point about what needs to be right, and I don't want to do that. I went through all of my sermon notes, and I threw away two-thirds of all my sermon notes. I wish I'd kept some of them. research. I just threw it away. I'm like, I am changing. I went to my wife. I went to Robbie. I went to the assistant. I told my mom, Dad, I said, if you ever hear me say one thing negative, in order to make a positive point, I said, call my hand on it. I am not going to be that guy. And I had to do that. Now, I, now I'm more balanced. But at that point in time, I was becoming very cynical. And I didn't want to be that person. And so self-awareness. And I, and I, I went to one time and I said, what do I need to do to be a better leader? And they all looked at me. Every single one, without a fail, they said, you're a nice guy. And that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. And I'm like, it made me mad, but I was being nice. They said, it's, it's difficult for you to lead. And the truth is, is that it was difficult for me to lead. Because, I'll notice this, now. I'll, I'll bring this to a close here in a minute. Maybe I'll take one more question if I get done with this story. But I had a philosophy. Remember philosophies are what drive your values? I had a philosophy that we are to be kind. And that philosophy and that value, being kind, and this is what the Bible says, you know, be kind was such a driving factor in my life that I didn't know how to correct things. And so I let people do things that were not conducive for the church and leadership, and we lost new people because I would not confront some people that needed to be confronted. And I struggled with it. Brother Linder, I, I, didn't, I didn't know how to, how to handle it. And years later, I finally figured it out, and it's the values. And when I figured it out, my life changed because I'm not calling them to orbit around me. I'm calling them into orbiting around the values. So good. So good. I, you, I got time for a quick illustration. I am, I am counseling a couple. Uh, I've never, I've never um, met them before. I'm brought in to counsel them. And um, the, the husband had had an affair after one year of marriage. They stayed together for three months. Um, it wasn't moving forward as it should have been, and it was a, it was a, they were not getting the help they needed. And then they separated, and they went back to their hometowns, and they were separated for eight months. And then I'm asked to come in and counsel them. And so I meet with them. The husband tells me everything he should say. I'm sorry. I, I've repented. I've, and he, he went on and on. He's weeping and weeping. And I'm trying to talk to his um, wife and, um, you know, get her to act answer questions. I'm asking open-ended questions. She found a way to close them, and uh, it was not going anywhere. She says three or four minutes of, 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 of stuff in an hours-long session, and then I went home, and I came back the next week to meet with them again. And now, mind you, when they walk in, he sits down in the couch. She's in a chair as far away from him as she can get, and it's the same thing. It starts repeating, and I'm like, okay, God, I've had all the premarital and marital counseling that LPC has. I've had all this training. I've done counseling for years. I've been a family pastor. I've done all this stuff. I have no answers. God, please, what do I need to do? And the Lord gave me a, a portion of an answer. And I jumped up, and I took a chair, and I put this chair and, uh, that I was sitting in. And I jumped up, and I walked behind it. And I put my hands on it, and I said, I have a question. There's only one chair in this room. And I said, this is it. Who's going to be the one who sits in this chair? Is it you or you? And they're just looking at me. Now, I've never read this, never seen it illustrated, never heard of it. I just, just God was leading me to do this, and this is what I did. I said, this is what I see, sir. And what I'm doing is what I did then. I said, this is what I see. Um, you are the one who is sitting in the chair, and you are saying that um, you are going to orbit around me because I have begged for forgiveness. I've asked God to forgive me. I've done everything I know to do, and there's nothing for me to do any further than this. So I'm going to be the one who sits in the chair, and you expect your wife to orbit around you. And I said, and ma'am, what I see is that you are the one who is saying, no, I'm going to be the one who sits in that chair because I don't trust you, and I'm not going any further in this marriage relationship because I don't trust you. So you're going to sit in the chair, and you expect your husband to orbit around you. And I said, um, but here's the problem. There's only one chair. And by this time, I'm standing behind the chair, and I said, God, what's next? <laughs> because I don't have a clue. 
Uh, and, and the Lord, I felt the Lord impressed on me. And I looked at the man and I said, sir, do you love the Lord? And he's like, yes. And I said, do you, do you really love him? And yes. And I didn't plan it, but I did it three times, just like Jesus asked the apostle Peter. I said, do you really love him? And tears start flowing down his face. And he said, yes. And I said, I believe you. I said, ma'am, do you love the Lord? She said, yes. Do you really love him? Yes. Do you really love him? And all of a sudden, tears start rolling down her face. And I said, I, and she says, yes. And I said, I believe you. And I'm standing behind the chair and I clapped my hands together and I smiled and I said, congratulations, the two of you are going to have a great marriage. And they're just looking at me. He's on this end of the couch. She's in this chair as far away from him as she can get. And I'm saying they're going to have a great marriage. And I said, I'll tell you why. I said, you just told me who's going to sit in the chair. It's not you nor you. It's him. And I said, because he's going to sit in the chair. I said, now you are going to orbit around him. It's not about you. And I began to talk to him about what that looked like in practical terms, that he had to build trust, and she had to forgive and let go and choose not to bring it up and use it for indicative purposes. And today, he is a minister in his local church, preaches. They have a wonderful family that was years ago. And uh, it's just amazing what God did in that situation. Well, the Lord took that and impressed it upon me. And years later, I started, and I, and, um, I was in a nonprofit uh, called Equipping Leaders. And we were meeting, and there was different ones that came in, flew in. We met in Dallas, and I'm in a hotel lobby, and we were meeting. And um, one of them said, well, what does the organizational flowchart look like? And I took out a piece of paper, and I drew a circle in the middle, and I said, there's the core values and, and, and the common purpose and the core values. And then I drew these circles around, it and I said, here's us. And I said, we're going to orbit around this. And would you know that it was a few years later that I found that same drawing? It's not, it's not common, but that same drawing, I found that flow chart in corporate America. It exists. And I was just teaching it at a church here recently in which um, it's very pastor-centric. And I was teaching the team, and at the last 15 minutes, I walked over to a whiteboard, and I drew that same drawing out. And the pastor walked up, and he said, right before COVID, he said, I was praying about what God wanted to do in our church. And he said, I knew something had to shift. And he said, and the tears started rolling down his face. He said, the Lord spoke to me and said, this is the future of your church. And he said, I drew that same drawing out. He said, it's on a piece of paper in my office. And I walked back afterwards, a little piece of paper, this big, identical drawing that I had drawn out about 10 years ago in Dallas. And he drew it out two years ago. And my point in saying that is to say this. It's not about you, and it's not about the people on your team. They're not the center. But the common purpose and the core values are the center. And if you can figure out what that is and orbit around that and call one another into alignment of orbiting around it, then you're on your way to have a good and healthy culture that is going to win. It's going to help teams and churches and organizations to win. Amen. Thank you for allowing me to share. And I made it with one minute to spare.